LinkedIn, Twitch, Yelp, or Pinterest. Do you use any of those? I mean, yeah, but what's your point? Imagine your life without any of them. Dude, like, I need my Pinterest boards. Come on. I mean, yeah, fair. Well, without the world's oldest VC firm, they may never exist. Damn. Let's get uninvested. Welcome back to Uninvested, everyone. For today's episode, we have another special guest that will be giving his take on everything Twitter and venture capital. Adityanid Marty is a fellow Northwestern alum. Go Cats, by the way. Uh, as an undergrad, he became heavily involved in the Garage Northwestern's premier startup incubator um, while studying economics, business, and entrepreneurship. And after exploring consulting for a summer as an analyst at McKinsey, Aditya then moved on to Bessemer Ventures, where he remains as an investor today. As a bit of background on Bessemer for our listeners, Bessemer Ventures, BVP as it's commonly known, is officially the oldest venture capital firm in history. Just recently, they closed on two new funds, uh, $3.85 billion for its 12th flagship fund, BVP XII, and $780 million for its inaugural BVP Forge Fund. Bottom line, BVP fuels some of the world's greatest innovations and brightest founders. Aditya also recently made a jump from BVP New York to BVP London. Uh, he's about a thousand times smarter than Sahil and I, and we are thrilled to learn from him today. How's it going, Aditya? It's great to be uh, connected. I think it's been a while since we spoke. Sahil, I spoke to you more recently, uh, clocked about a year, year and a half back, we both connected. Uh, so yeah, good to be back uh, and, and chat more with you guys about my journey, Twitter, and excited to take it to different places that we don't know where it's going to go, but excited about it. Yeah, super, super excited to have you on. Um, so we're, we're curious, like our, our guests come from all different places and, and you're one of the most unique perspectives that we've had on so far. Um, you're a Northwestern alum, just like us. Um, and I'm sure our listeners, especially from Northwestern, are really curious kind of about that background. So let's, let's take us back to like our shoes. Like you're a Northwestern senior. Um, what does your journey look like from there? Um, you go, right, what does your path look like? Why don't you just take us back a second? So let me just uh, take it back even further than that. So my, my background is that I was born and raised in India, uh, moved to the U.S. for school, uh, had a bunch of internships along the way, was a, was, a, was a two-time intern at the Chicago company called Spot Hero, which is still around, uh, one of the better performing uh, Chicago-based companies uh, from a profitability standpoint, because that's what all companies now care about. Uh, and those guys are close to, or, or if I'm not mistaken, even profitable now. Um, so I had, had two internships there, then made my way to McKinsey, uh, and then made my way to Bessemer uh, as an investor in New York, and was with them for about two and a half years in New York, and recently moved over to London. Uh, so that's a quick snapshot of my journey. Obviously, there are a lot of nuances and stories along the way, but that's, that's the quick snapshot uh, of, of my journey so far. Yeah, so we'd love to know, you know, coming from investing in the States, then going to London, what is the biggest difference when you're investing in a European, American company, really just like a multinational startup? I wouldn't say there's anything different per se in terms of how we evaluate companies in Europe versus the US. Uh, so let me just back up a little bit and explain to you why I, I moved here in the first place. So yeah, I come from this point of view where I believe that the best venture capitalists, so if you look at you know, the greats of this industry, the veterans who have been around for 20, 25 years and have had success throughout, the career, throughout their career over 25 years, 30 years even in some cases, 
they've been genderless for life. So what that means is that they'll focus on some areas for, for some periods of time, two, three, four years, and they immediately move on and sort of rediscover something new that excites them uh, in terms of the space, in terms of different building blocks that they, that they focus on in terms of investments. And they are all constantly reinventing themselves. That's also because technology is moving at, at such a clip where if you get boxed into certain swim lanes, um, it's hard for you to find the next big thing that might not be in your swim lane. So that's the philosophy I have where the best venture capitalists, the ones that have the longest careers and have successes throughout those long careers, uh, they're generalists for life with periodic areas of focus. Now, even if you agree, it's sort of counterintuitive, right? Like, you know, America is, is much stronger from a macro perspective than Europe. Uh, and sort of it's counterintuitive for someone to say, no, 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 I'm not going to be investing in America anymore. I'm, I'm going to move all the way to Europe. You can argue that emerging markets like India are exciting, and, and I didn't go there as yet. Uh, but sort of it seems counterintuitive on the face of it that why would I leave uh, investing in the American ecosystem and move to Europe? And I'll explain that. So even if you agree that the American macro is twice as strong as the European macro, and let's just put some numbers, uh, 2x for everything, twice the number of companies being formed in America, twice the size of exits, uh, twice the number of VCs, everything is just twice as big as in, in America as in Europe. Decimal on a micro level is about 30 times or maybe 25 times bigger in America than it's in Europe. So Europe net-net is like a 12 and a half times more of an open opportunity uh, in terms of investments than America. And if you come from this belief that you want to be a true generalist, Europe is just more open because since Bessemer is bigger in the US, you have swim lanes, right? Like, oh, you have to do this. It's not, it's not as explicit as that, but sort of you try and, 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 and do something because you know someone else is doing something and you can't do that in some ways because they already have like a head start or they have some level of expertise and network in that space. And sort of you get boxed into different areas. And that just didn't sit well with me with this notion that I really wanted to be a generalist, uh, at least at the early stages of, of investing, right? Because a founder with a radical idea is not going to be like, I'm creating a fintech company because I know there are a lot of fintech investors out there. The founder is just crazy. Like they just have this absolutely ridiculous idea about something they're pursuing. And it doesn't have to do with them understanding that there's a lot of money being flown into a certain area. It's just that they have experience or, or they just have an idea or, or they've worked somewhere where they've seen inefficiencies and they really want to go solve those inefficiencies or really want to solve those inefficiencies. Uh, and that's the reason I'm, I'm here because I just feel it's much easier from a micro perspective for me at Bessemer to be a true generalist in Europe than it was in the US. Um, so that's, that's the, the reasoning um, behind why I'm here. And now coming back to your question, so I don't think anything changes per se uh, when it comes to us evaluating companies here. Uh, the only thing that's different is that it transcends geographies. You know, you're a European investor, you're trying to find companies in the UK, you're uh, Germany, the Nordics, um, um, Eastern Europe for, for that sense. So it's just cross-border. Um, and in some cases, for, for the most part, we have been trying to focus on investing in companies that are selling globally. Uh, what that means is that even if a company is being formed in Paris, let's say, um, what, excites us is the mo what excites us the most is that if that company has global ambitions, because any one European country doesn't have enough of a market to sustain big outcomes just by selling to that country. And if you're a software company and you really want to own one, one, one vertical that you're building in, chances are high that you'll find customers elsewhere as well. 
Uh, and that's why what excites us the most is that European companies are global. Uh, the good ones are global from day one. That doesn't need to be the case for American companies because you can just say, I want to sell to other American startups and you can still build a big business. And I'd say that's the difference. Uh, one major difference, obviously there are a lot of differences, but one major difference uh, that doesn't mean that we don't invest in companies that sell the European companies as well. I recently did a Series A in a company called iSecurity, which is out of Amsterdam. Uh, and they sell to SMBs Pan Europe. Again, that's a big market, right? There's so many SMBs and SMEs. And if you include all of them in Europe, all countries, that again is a sizable market. Uh, so it's a case-by-case thing. But if, if it's a software company being built in Europe, the good ones are global from day one. Uh, I'd say that's the main difference between sort of American software companies. American software companies are also global, but they're not thinking global from day one. European founders and companies are thinking global from day one because they know that their countries are not big markets uh, to sustain big outcomes um, just by selling to those countries internally. Okay. I mean, I think, look, the the perspective is like inviolable. And I also think it's interesting because I think when most people think of um, moving to a different market, um, like to break out of being uh, a generalist or whatever, it's like you're, you're looking specifically to break into a vertical that's like emerging in one country better than the rest. And But for you, it's almost like uh, that's not the idea. It's more so just moving to uh, a place where there's like greater, broader power and like greater, broader interest from um, from founders across the landscape. But I'm interested in moving into um, kind of the follow-up to one of our previous episodes on Twitter. Um, you've, you've clearly expressed like as a venture capitalist, all you're doing every day is evaluating companies. Um, whether or not you are invested or thinking of investing in them or completely divested from that company and completely removed from it. Um, you are super vocal on Twitter. We've been checking out your Twitter recently, and uh, you have a lot of interesting takes that you, that you put on there all the time. We're curious to know, how do you think Elon's cultural changes that he's brought to Twitter already, um, you know, like longer, more demanding hours, um, very in-person product focus, uh, product focus, a lot of um, product pivots already, um, so how did you think these changes that he's brought to Twitter are going to affect kind of like the lot, larger, broader startup landscape today? Yeah, I, I think a lot about it. And just one, one quick correction. I don't spend all of my days evaluating companies. I spend all of my days building relationships with founders. That's a slight distinction yeah. uh, in, in how I view venture. But that aside, so, so coming back to Twitter, um, I'm not necessarily against Elon's way of doing certain things. So having a riff, saying that we need to get to profitability, demanding workers come into the office, demanding more accountability. These are pretty good things to ask for from your employees. I'm not against that. What I'm against is venting day in, day out against your employees on Twitter, creating sensationalism, and in some ways alienating the people who still work for you. Right. I mean, you had this riff and you could easily move on from it and say, OK, we've done the riff. We've got the fat. And now we are a team. We have this global ambition of turning Twitter into something greater than it already is. In some ways, we are trying to recoup uh, or, 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 or regain what we had lost uh, in all these years because of all the stuff that happened. And let's do it together. But I don't think he's doing that. I think he he vents on Twitter every day about this is not working, that is not working. The previous uh, management did that, and then he calls some new reporter and and sort of tries to leak information. Like you're a CEO, like make your existing employees believe in a vision, and let's march towards that vision. Um, and I've not seen traits of that 
coming coming into into sort of the current culture i have a friend who a really good friend who works there and i keep asking him like do you believe in the vision like is there a vision there and he's like no it's just sensationalism you know there's some tweet sent out and no sorry there's some slack message sent out and everyone scrambles and there's no uh, sort of clear direction and then you you launch twitter blue in a very haphazard way and then you take it off again and then you pick a fight with apple it's just sensationalism it's just like internet uh, sort of comics or or internet memes that are going on as opposed to running a company uh and and bringing it to profitability and making sure that you know you're worthy of that 44 billion price tag uh that that you paid for so it's it's a, it's a jumble it's a jumble uh, opinion but sort of my overarching thought is that i don't agree uh, with the way he's running the company although i do agree that the building blocks are there in place and sort of it's his job now to connect them and bring everyone together and unite the team and march towards a vision which is not happening So we're talking about Elon specifically. How do you think his reputation? Obviously, he brings a lot of baggage to Twitter from all his like past. He's had a lot of scandal. You know, he's had scandals, had successes. Like, how do you think Bounders' reputation affects the startups itself? Like, you know, when you're investing in it, or is like Twitter a unique case because Elon is such a known name? It depends on what kind of reputation are you talking, right? If if you tell me, hey, this is a founder who had a failed startup. Yeah, it doesn't go against them. You know, everyone fails. You fail. I fail. Like everyone has failures, and and sort of you evaluate it on a case by case basis. Now, if you tell me that the founder is coming with baggage like Adam Newman, that's a big red flag, right? It's yeah. it's it's gross negligence of corporate culture. It's in some ways outright wire fraud, uh, and all these kinds of things. So I think that is a big no no, and those are big red flags. But if the founder maybe has a failed startup in the past, or maybe you know was driven out of their previous company because of differences on a professional level like you can do your work uh from a references checking standpoint and get over those kind of humps but if you're coming with a reputation of gross corporate negligence or you know uh wire fraud or pseudo wire fraud i'm not saying i mean if you're if you're wire fraud you're convicted for that obviously there's no way we can back you uh but you know what i mean right in the last 4 or 5 years it was the founders market uh, in terms of fundraising and that gave a lot of power to them understandably so and and i like that but it also gave rise to a lot of negligence lack of corporate controls uh, and a lot of founders got swayed in the negative direction because of that and if you do your work and you uncover stories like that or you uncover uh, uh, episodes like that then it gets really hard for us as venture capitalists to back them even though the idea or the company they have might be super compelling Right so I mean I love I love the kind of concept you brought up of like there's two sides to this right we we did an episode on Adam Newman in the past um and right there there's the one side which is like look you have a comp- you have a massive firm like and like Andreessen who is willing to reinvest in him um and they've probably done their due diligence on his new deal but then there's like the people and there's there's the the labor side right like do you think it's even possible for Elon at this point to change Twitter employees like reputational image of him or is it just completely damaged like is there no coming back from this point from his employees perspective or, or even as a founder like how do you recoup that reputational damage if you would call it damage my ideal case if i were Elon would be to do what he did in the initial days without doing all the sensationalism that he did and then immediately turn the page and say the stuff we had to do from a cost cutting standpoint is done this is what i require from my workforce hard work extreme motivation and for those things we're going to put a policy in place things like you know less vacation 
or less freebies or less perks because first of all, the market's not that good, but we also need extreme um, you know, controls in place to make sure everyone's working without us spending that much money. It all comes from a money standpoint, right? You want to save money because money is expensive and you've firstly paid a huge price tag and you want to justify that price tag and pay for the debt that you have. Uh, and then we have this vision that we want to march towards. So that all is missing. Uh, and given the pain that has been caused, and I'll give you a small anecdote. We were at dinner in, in London and it was myself, one of my friends from Facebook and the other friend from Twitter. And we were enjoying a dinner and my friend from Twitter does not have Slack on his phone. Uh, for some reason or the other, he couldn't download Slack because he also moved from the US and sort of it had an app store that was linked to the US and just he couldn't, couldn't, doesn't, didn't have Slack on his phone. And he got an email from his colleague saying, hey, there's been this massive group created on Slack where Elon's asking everyone to send code reviews. And a normal person would be like, okay, you know, I can look at that once it gets done, 20, 30, 40 minutes from now. That's what you, I, anyone would do, right? Because we have managers who are understanding and obviously like, no one's going to get penalized for replying 40 minutes later because you're eating dinner on a Friday at 9 p.m. But no, the amount of fear this person had, he literally ran back, took a cab, went home because wanted to check Slack on his computer. Like wow. that's the kind of fear that's been instilled. And if you're trying to build a world-class organization and trying to justify a $44 billion price tag, you can't have fear. Uh, you need to empower the independent contributor, the, the machine learning scientist, the machine learning engineer, or the data scientist, or the marketer, or any person. Like They have to be independently empowered to do what they do best, as opposed to someone coming with this vision from a top-down approach saying, no, 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 you have to do that, or you have to do this, or that person has to do that. And this takes me back to economies, like centrally planned authoritarian states have always failed. The best companies are ones that drive innovation from within, where people can come up with ideas, have viable solutions to make those ideas a reality. And if they don't work, they're not penalized for failure. Uh, I was looking at a podcast or, or listening to a podcast uh, where Sundar Pichai was explaining how Google has multiple startups within Google where many of them fail, but the ones that succeed end up being massive product lines for Google. Like that's the culture they have instilled. Um, and it's not Sundar telling person A or person B like, no, you have to build something like Google Chrome. Like Sundar built Google Chrome back in the day and probably it came from this extreme level of entrepreneurship within Google. But you know, Larry or, or Sergey didn't tell Sundar that you have to build a browser. Like probably it was his idea. Uh, and he had some resources that they gave him to test that idea out. That's how you know you go you go from being uh, a company that's as badly managed as Twitter uh, to something like Google that's constantly re-innovating itself. So what is this thought like? For part of me, I thought like you know Elon, all these tweets is like a marketing tactic per se. You know, really like flip the switch on Twitter, and I clearly it's like affecting the employees themselves. So what are your thoughts like? You know, the idea of like all publicity is good publicity, and especially like when it's about the internal aspects of the company itself. Like, should the public have access to the type of transparency that Twitter's providing? Or do you think that's really hurting the employees even more? I would argue that it hurts employees even more. Um, Twitter's a private company. It doesn't need everything to be public. Um, why should the public know what standards employees are being held up to? Like if you're telling employees like, no, we're going to cut lunch tomorrow because we don't have enough money to pay for lunch because we need to be profitable. Like why does the average Joe on the street need to know that? 
Um, why does the average Joe need to know what a Twitter employee is losing? Like, oh, we're going to reduce salaries. Or, oh, we're going to reduce the uh, number of holidays you're given. Or, oh, we're going to reduce lunch. Like, these things add pressure in ways that can't be quantified. Um, and you don't want to put your employees through that. Rather, you need to, to win them over by saying, see, we know these things are there. We know that the economy is not doing too well. We know we have this huge debt burden, uh, which we need to service. And the only way we can service it is by reducing the cost structure we have. And it's going to be painful, but we are all here to share the pain along with you. And let's make this grand vision we have, which he hasn't shared, a reality. Instead of going on Twitter and saying, no, we're, we're going to slash the salaries or we're going to reduce the number of holidays you get or we're going to reduce uh, the lunch you get. Like, why? It's just unnecessary. It doesn't add, it doesn't add any value. Uh, and, it, and it hurts the employees in ways that can't be quantified. You know, it's more like a, a emotional pain and, and, and stuff that employees need to go to. Like, if you're being told that your salary is being capped or being reduced, like your number of holidays are being taken away, like you're not going to get the free lunch that you got every day. Like, doesn't that piss employees off in some ways? And then you rub salt on those wounds by making that public where, you know, some random person, like a bot is interacting with that tweet and just like talking nonsense. Uh, it's just adding salt uh, on the wounds, which is just unnecessary. So, I mean, obviously, like, public reactions to this are everything. It's why we asked the question in the first place about, like, you know, is, is all PR good PR? Um, we see, like, there's this massive split. There's still... A largely cult-like following of Twitter, like Twitter loyalists, people who are sticking with it, who like eat the stuff up and they love to follow it on Twitter. And then there's this other group of people who are completely breaking away, divesting from Twitter, like an anti-Elon crowd, people who are saying, you know, Twitter is going to fail and then another startup is going to come take its place, like the next big social media thing. We're curious, like, let's imagine that happens. Like, do you think the social media space is just oversaturated in general? Um, is this an opportunity for someone else to come break in and kind of make up for the losses that, that Twitter is, is clearly putting out. Um, what are your thoughts on the social media space in general? I think, I don't want to generalize social media firstly. Let's talk about Twitter. I think Twitter serves a pretty good problem in the market, right? You want to directly hear from people you trust and people you follow. Like you directly want to hear their unfiltered views and Twitter does a great job for that. You can argue like, oh, there can be another Twitter. Like Twitter is not that hard to engineer, but it's hard to get all those people that are already on Twitter uh, and sort of network effects play really well into Twitter's hands and, and Twitter needs to leverage that. Um, so I think Twitter provides great utility. I think I would be more than happy to pay for Twitter. Um, and so I, I, I don't, if they can, it can go really wrong from here. If, if, if Elon and team do something really drastic and radical, it could go wrong, where it could alienate a certain class of people and take them away from Twitter. Uh, and Twitter's value is with more people engaging with the platform, right? Like if you alienate a certain group of people, I don't know how many of those, those people will actually end up leaving Twitter. But myself, for example, I have muted almost 30 people in the last one month. And before that, I'd muted like maybe three people over the last 10 years. Uh, it's just gotten extremely polarizing to the extent where it's not, it's not, in, I don't know how to put it in words, but it's not living up to what it's built to live up to, which is constant dialogue. It's less polarizing. It should be less polarizing. They should have, there should be really good dialogue on it. And some of the things that Elon has proposed, like, you know, making sure that the bots are removed, making sure that people actually who they are, 
are the right things. Uh, the question is execution and execution so far has been pathetic. Um, so I think Twitter as a utility has, has a lot of value. Uh, the other social media platforms I use are Instagram. I think Instagram, I don't know how to, how to, how to define it as a social media platform. I mainly use it as a mood board. Uh, I'm just basically sharing the stuff I'm eating or the places I'm traveling to. I basically have less than 400 followers. So it's, it's a close knit uh, kind of community for me. So I can't make a comment on, on whether Twitter, uh, whether Instagram is saturated or no. Um, and TikTok, I'm not a big TikTok user, but I can see a lot of value that TikTok provides. So I don't think social media, would you include TikTok as social media? Oh yeah, I, I would absolutely no, yeah. include it. Exactly, like Be Real, TikTok, all those I would say are social media, just ways of like communicating with people that necessarily aren't with you. Yeah, so I agree that social media has been overdone. I think the business models are not viable anymore. The business models that social media companies use in the past, which is let's hook people on, with some novel tool or some novel thing that they can do, share photos or add filters or you know, uh, comment on things and all those kinds of things. And then on the back end, we can monetize based on this activity because we can sell this data to different advertisers who can advertise products and people will buy those things. I think that business model of advertising uh, with, the, with the hook being some sort of gamification uh, has done. The first hook was actual utility, right? Like Facebook allowed you to connect with different people, an actual utility. Instagram allowed you to actually share photos, actual utility. Twitter allowed you to actually share your thoughts and, and, and hear other people's thoughts and interact with them, actual utility. But be real, like sharing a photo at one particular point in your day, like what is the utility in that? Instagram can do that. Snapchat can do that. You can do that without even those platforms being designed for that. Like if you decide at two o'clock every day, I want to post an Instagram story on what I'm doing. You can do that. Uh, and they gamified it even more and saying, okay, we're going to make everyone do it at two o'clock. But it, 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 there's no real innovation there. Like there's no utility there. It's just basically, it's a game. It's fun. Uh, but if it's fun, it's also probably a fad to a certain degree. And a fad doesn't have a business model that works in the long run, uh, at least in my, uh, the way I think about it. So, you know, in a utopian world, you can argue that, oh, so many people are using B-Rail, so B-Rail doesn't need to have ads and they can have a subscription model. Will you pay 10 bucks a month to share a photo once a day and look at like maybe 15 other fo people's photos once a day? I wouldn't. Uh, so as long as it's free and as long as it's being funded by VC dollars, yeah, you'll find users because maybe you can advertise, maybe you, for, for, you have like a unique product eventually, but what's defensible in that? Instagram can copy it. Instagram copied Snapchat stories. Like Instagram stories are big, if not bigger than Snapchat stories now. Um, and there's nothing inherently defensible in Bureau. So the way I put it is the incremental social media platform that's coming up is really nothing new and doesn't provide any more utility uh, than what it's trying to replace. Uh, and it doesn't have a viable business model today that can help it, that can help it survive. That's the way I put it. So in some ways, yes, it's overdone today. Yeah, that's what I thought. I consider like most of these new social medias to be like features rather than products. You know, you saw Clubhouse failed for the exact reason. Like it was a feature, not really like necessarily product or you're exactly right. You can take like 100,000 engineers from Meta, put anything you want right into Instagram. It's like very easy process. But we're running up on time. So I really want to ask one more question. We love to ask all, all our um, guests is what is one routine or staple that you follow throughout the years? You know, something that stayed consistent in your life. Maybe it's a breakfast that you have every day. I constantly keep 
thinking about what my edge is, right? I mean, mm. you have so many people out here doing the same thing. Um, and in some ways, I constantly keep asking myself, what is my edge that's going to help me keep doing what I love doing for a few more years uh, and then some more? Um, and obviously, the answer keeps varying from one point to another. But I constantly keep looking at my my historical life. like, And at pivotal moments, why did I do what I did? Um, and then you sort of draw inspiration from that, which helps you um, inform your future decisions. And obviously, that analysis just keeps changing over time. Uh, but I'm constantly trying to connect the dots between what I did five years back. Was it with the same intention uh, that I did something two years back? And was the same intention uh, relevant to what I did today? Uh, and, I, and I keep sort of repeating that exercise time and time again. So that's one of the rituals. I don't know if that makes sense. That's a little weak, but I. It, 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 comple- it completely makes sense. And you know, what's funny is like, I think you're one of the first people who hasn't given us the, the answer of just, oh, I like to meditate every day. So that's, that actually might be my favorite answer so far. <laughs> yeah, it's like this, it's still like in the same nature, kind of like this like reflective nature. And that helps me understand that if there is going to be a decision like that to take in the future, will I have an edge or will there be something that I know that others don't know while I'm making that same decision. Um, the, and, the, and you know, coming back to sort of what I explained earlier, like sort of I connected the dots and that helped me easily make this decision about coming to Europe. Because it's counterintuitive, right? For someone who's moved all the way from India, my parents are asking me like, why the hell are you going to Europe? Like we sent you to the US, like literally <laughs> it was such a big decision to send you all the way from India to the US. And like you're leaving the US and going to Europe, like it makes no sense. And then sort of walk them through my analysis. And I, and I could come up with that analysis because I've taken decisions like that in the past, which have seemed really counterintuitive, uh, but have helped me develop an edge uh, by sort of analyzing those things in the past. So yeah, that's, that's an exercise that I keep repeating time and time again. I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, well, we're approaching time, but if you, for listeners out there, if you haven't realized it already, Aditya has possibly one of the sharpest and most informed theses on everything from Twitter to social media to investing abroad versus here, um, even on building relationships with founders, which I think is probably most important. Um, but if you want to stay tuned with all of Aditya's thoughts, you can check out his Twitter, which will be right here. Make sure to stay tuned with us on Uninvested, and hopefully we can have you back on very, very soon. Thank you for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Of course. Yeah, thank you for coming on. But as always, uh, I'm Sahil Seth. I'm Crockett Calloway. I'm Aditya Nidmarthy. And this is Uninvested. Thank you. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at un.invested. Subscribe to our YouTube. You're going to want to follow us. we got some crazy interviews coming out. Peace. This is a personal video. Any views or opinions represented in this video are personal and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations we may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity. The views expressed are for entertainment purposes only and not to be misinterpreted as actionable investment advice.